So please turn with me this morning to Mark 12:35 through 44. Mark 12:35 through 44. This is where we will behold and contemplate the beauty and the wonder of God and his word this morning. Mark 12:35 through 44. Bear with me if I might have a cough now or then. I forgive me for that. Um, we've just finished up uh, with our Image of God series in January. It was wonderful to sit under all of our elders and hear each one of one of them preach and, and, and teach us about this this core doctrine, this core confession uh, of our Christian faith. I was certainly blessed. And one of the main points that, that uh, the entire series revolved around was this reality that if we're wondering what the image of God looks like, well, if we could picture that, we need to look no further than the man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In Jesus, we see the, the image of God displayed perfectly because he is fully God and fully man. He is the Son of God wrapped in human flesh and perfectly resembles and reflects his heavenly father. It's got me thinking a little bit about family resemblances, and I think Will might have even mentioned something like this in one one of his gospel welcomes uh, uh, in this series, how uh, most of us can relate to the idea that when we see members of a certain family, we can, we can tell that, that they belong to that family, right? We, we, we say things like, oh, you are the, the spitting image of your father or of your mother. And most of the time when we say that, we're talking about more than just physical features. It can be that, but a lot of times we're looking a little bit deeper and talking about, oh, the personality, their demeanor, the way they, they act. We can see uh, uh, their parent in them or a sibling. And, and so uh, there are some people who physically don't look like any members of their family. They might be outliers. And yet, yet once we see them act and, and see their personality come out, we go, oh yeah, you are, definite, you are, you are definitely a, a Gatewood or, or a Todd or, or a Kamenish, right? Um, this happens to me and my brother often. We could not look any different physically in, in so many ways. But once we get together, people realize, oh, yeah, y'all are definitely related. It's either by probably our goofy humor, inside jokes, those kind of things. But you, you just see characteristics start to come out. Well, the point is, when we think of family resemblance, it, it goes deeper than outward appearance. And, and we think of uh, the family of faith in the kingdom of God. People don't look anything alike physically, culturally, come from all different backgrounds, yet we resemble one another in this reality that we're united to Christ by faith, and we begin to reflect God in the same fruits and characteristics. Moreover, as we've seen in Mark, some of the most unassuming people are those who actually prove themselves to be outsider, or insiders in the kingdom of God, while those who you may think on the outside look like they would be insiders are actually outsiders of the kingdom. So we, we're going to revisit that familiar theme in Mark today, this insiders and outsiders of the kingdom, and, and what do insiders of the kingdom look like and what do outsiders look like? Mark is moving us that direction. Specifically today we're going to ask, how does a, a, a poor widow resemble the king of God's kingdom, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
And by considering those features, we're compelled to ask ourselves, in what ways do I or do I not resemble my king? Do I bear marks of an insider or an outsider? Before we get to that, let's remind ourselves a little bit of our context. So as we've been making our journey through Mark, we we have... uh, recalled over and over again that one of Mark's primary agendas is to show that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, he is the Messiah. Uh, Mark starts this way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's his, one of his main points, that, that yes, he's the promised Messiah, the Son of David, the promised King, but he will not only operate with divine authority, he is divine in himself. And the Jewish expectations of the day would agree that the Messiah is a son of David and would be coming from David's line. But, but this reality that uh, he would actually be divine is something that they have not considered. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love so when we look at Jesus and Mark, we see the Son of God. We see the original insider of God's kingdom. And today in our passage, we see Jesus, the supreme standard, the original insider of the kingdom. And we see that displayed. But then we also see two case studies. Uh, and we must ask ourselves, is, is this one an outsider or is this one an insider, and what are the marks that distinguish them? And, and what we will find is that some of the most unassuming, subtly beautiful characteristics like humility and trust prove to be the distinguishing markers for those in the kingdom. Look with me at Mark twelve thirty-five through 44 as I read. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So we will consider this passage in three parts. First, we will look at verses 35 through 37. The Christ, the Son of God, humbles himself. Then in part 2, verses 38 through 40, we see the scribes, outsiders, exalt themselves. And then in part 3, verses 41 through 44, we see the widow. Insiders give up their lives. The main message is, is this, the one 
who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Look with me at part 1, verses 35 through 37. The Christ, the Son of God, humbles himself. So remember, where we are in Mark, it's, it's been a minute, uh, but Jesus' messianic identity has, has been on display. We have people crying out, Son of David, calling him the Son of David. Think of blind Bartimaeus. We see Jesus entering into Jerusalem on, on a donkey, just like Zechariah prophesied the Messiah would enter. And, and he's entering in under the Psalm 118, the song of 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 the coming salvation of God. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. So, Jesus is the son of David. This is where we are. He's this Messiah. And, And so, most recently in Mark, we've seen the religious leaders threatened by this and and attempt to to challenge Jesus' authority and trip him up and and, and seek to destroy him. But Jesus answers each one of their challenges with, with such superiority, with such wisdom, that the last thing we read in Mark before we get to our passage is this, Mark 12, 34. No one dared to ask him any more questions. So now, it's Jesus' turn. He has literally just flipped over literal tables in in the temple not too long ago, and now he is going to flip or turn the proverbial table by asking a question of these uh, religious leaders. So let's read verse 35. And And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So the setting lets us know that religious leaders are present because he's in the temple teaching the crowds, teaching his disciples, and the religious leaders would be right there listening. And so Jesus poses this question to disrupt their preconceived notions of who the Messiah is, to blow up categories that they have set, the box that they have put God in. And the initial question is this, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, Jesus isn't challenging the notion that the Messiah would be a son of David. This is a clearly understood and, and, and a held truth, even amongst the religious leaders. The Messiah would come from the house of David. We heard some of it read this morning. God God made a covenant with David in, in, in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17 that his son would be the king who would reign forever over God's kingdom. And, and we see the uh, uh, Old Testament prophets pick up on this promise and fill out this reality. Isaiah says that the Messiah would be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's David's Family And Jeremiah even prophesies that, that, that God's coming kingdom, that in God's coming kingdom with the Messiah, God's people shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom God will raise up. So the Jews, the religious leaders, they know that the Messiah is the son of David. Jesus isn't refuting this. But, but what is he doing? He's asking this to point point out to them a mystery regarding the Messiah. And we, with our privilege of being on this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, this side of the ascension, this side of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we have the privilege of being able to discern 
some aspects of this mystery, namely the essence of the Messiah and the character of the Messiah. Look at verses 36 and 37. David himself, Jesus continues on, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So to fill out what he means by his riddling question, Jesus quotes Psalm 110. And Jesus points out the obvious. Here in this psalm, David says that the Lord Yahweh, Yahweh says to my Lord, my master, my king. David, Jesus says David himself calls him, his Lord, calls the Christ Lord. So, so and then he asks the, the question, so how can, if, if the Messiah is David's son, how can he also be his Lord? <clears throat> well, some might say that this psalm is actually not being, being spoken from David's perspective. Rather, it's, it's meant to be understood as someone with a third-person point of view, seeing David being, being affirmed in his, in his rule as king by Yahweh. But, but this doesn't fit because Jesus clearly and emphatically says, David himself says this. In fact, the, the beginning of this psalm, which we might not often think of, of, of these, uh, the beginning of the psalm being those little titles you read, but that's actually the beginning of the psalm in scripture. The beginning of Psalm 110 says this, a psalm of David. David's the author. David's the speaker. So essentially, Jesus implies if you disagree that David is calling the Messiah his Lord, the one who would be his son, his Lord, then, then you're disagreeing with David, you're disagreeing with King David. But not only are you disagreeing with King David, who else would they be disagreeing with? The Holy Spirit. Jesus says that David says this in the Holy Spirit. David prophesies. The Holy Spirit speaks through David. This is a divine word spoken by God himself. And God, speaking through David, declares that the Messiah, who we know will be David's son, is also David's Lord. So the mystery is, how can David, the rightful ruling king, the standard, submit himself to and call his son his Lord? How does that work? When we know David did have a son, Solomon, he reigned at the height of the kingdom of Israel. In many ways, he looked like he would have been this promised son, the Messiah. But we also know that he wasn't, mainly due to his sin and the fact that he died and wasn't reigning forever. And David never calls Solomon his lord. So, so what we can discern here is, is, in this mystery, the essence of the Messiah. Jesus points to a mysterious reality here. This son of David, while certainly being David's son, is also 
his Lord, his master. And this is because his son, whom he calls Lord, is God, the very son of God. So the scribes, they have to get over their preconceived notion and their their standards. They set David as the standard and said, the Messiah, his son, David's son, is going to look like David. He's going to be like him. But Jesus is saying, you have your category switched. David is like the Messiah. David is pointing to who the one is to come. And the reality is, as we know, this Messiah is truly David's son, but he's also the son of God, divine. And, and we see this in Mark throughout the demons. When Jesus steps onto the scene, they're, they're all exclaiming what? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is the mystery the religious leaders haven't considered. Their Messiah is not only operating with divine authority, their Messiah will be the divine authority. He is God. And it is his divinity and his humanity that is their and our only hope of salvation. So this leads to another observation We not only can discern the Messiah's essence here, his divinity and humanity, we can also make an observation about the Messiah's character from this passage, namely, his humility and trust. Now, how can we discern uh, the character of the Messiah that he's marked by humility and trust based on Jesus pointing to Psalm 110? Well, first, we see it exhibited in David. David is a picture and a pointer to this Messiah who is to come, as we just established. And he shows what a king over God's people in many ways should look like. And here, David exhibits humility and trust in God. Humility and trust that God's plan of salvation will come to pass. He prophesies it. David here is a king of humility and trust. So while David, though, exhibits this humility and trust imperfectly in his life, for we know his many faults, the Messiah will exhibit humility and trust in God perfectly. And we, it's even apparent in this Psalm 110 passage. Yahweh says to his promised Messiah, sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet or make them a footstool for your feet. This implies, trust me to do this. Humble yourself, and this will come to pass. And we know that this happened only by the Son of God stepping out of heaven, humbling himself in human flesh, as I, John, was just mentioning in the welcome, humbling himself even to the grave, Trusting that God would raise his perfect life, that his father would raise his perfect life, seat him at the right hand until all his enemies are defeated, Satan, sin, and death. The Son of God, the Messiah, is the supreme picture of humility before God and trust in God. And Jesus, the Messiah, here in Mark, is accomplishing the very reality 
that he is speaking about, and he's doing it through humility and trust. So Jesus, the Son of God, here, is the original insider of the kingdom of God, and he sets the standard for what that looks like. It looks like being one who is humble before God and trusts in God alone. And now we're invited to see two case studies to determine who looks like Jesus here, who are the outsiders and who are the insiders, and what awaits each. So let's look at part two, verses 38 through 40. The scribes, outsiders, exalt themselves. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So Jesus warns his, his hearers about the scribes. He says, beware. Beware of these scribes. Why? Well, his description of the scribes that follows gives us, gives us the reason. And, and what does he focus on? Jesus focuses on their desire. In, in fact, uh, uh, all of verse, verses 38 through 39 falls under this idea of their desire. The, the original Greek uh, even suggests the best way to translate this would be like this. This is, this is what it's conveying to us. Beware the scribes, the ones who desire to walk around in long robes, the ones who desire greetings in the marketplaces, the ones who desire the best seats in the synagogues, the ones who desire the places of honor at feasts. So all of these are things that they desire. And how are they all related? Well, these long robes here are meant to refer to the best robes. You'll often see it translated that way, the best robes. These are garments that communicate importance, prominence, position. They're a status symbol. The same goes for greetings in the marketplaces. Culturally, when Rabbis or teachers or scribes walked into a marketplace. It was expected that their inferiors would greet them. They're not coming in greeting anybody. The inferior would greet them and honor them. This, too, was a status symbol. And, and the same with seats, the best seats in the synagogue, the best seats, places of honor at feasts. This is where where notoriety, people of notoriety sit. They get the best seats. They desire to have all eyes on them, including their own. If they could, the scribes, they had their way, they would live in a house of mirrors where everything just reflected themselves and came back to them. So what's, what's the common thread in all, these desire, in all these desires? Well, it's pride and self-exaltation. Pride and self-exaltation. They desire and seek the approval of man. They exalt themselves in their pride. And notice that their desire to exalt themselves will always give way to oppressive effects. It goes hand in hand with devouring widows' houses. 
Jesus says. Now, we don't know all the ins and outs and details of, of, of what's that, what, what that looked like, but the overall point is not hard to grasp. These self-exalting scribes oppress those who are weak and lower than them and take advantage even of their weakness and their faith. And they do this while feigning piety and flaunting piety and holiness for a pretense, making long prayers. The parallel passage we heard this morning, Matthew 23, 1 through 12, says they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people, people's shoulders. By their lives, they're exemplifying a works-based salvation that if you look like this and do these things, this is what it means to be holy. But they're the opposite of what the Messiah displays in his humility. They are pridefully arrogant, self-exalters. This is the mark of an outsider. But where, where does this pride and self-exaltation come from? What's the origin and, and what's it aimed at even? Well, it could be. Uh, what we've kind of seen is that they're, they're chasing man's approval. They, they just they want to hear uh, the approval of man. They prefer man's approval over God's. They, they fear man. They don't fear God. And that leads to pride and arrogance. And, th- and that's not a wrong answer, but I, I don't know if it's the fullest answer. In fact, I think uh, what we're seeing here is is when we compare this to the paradigm of the Messiah, where humility goes hand in hand with with trust in God, humility flows from trust in God, then when we see self-exaltation and pride, we should expect that that self-exaltation and pride is flowing from trust in self. And it's even serving Trust in self. As they exalt themselves before men out of trusting themselves, they're also reaping that exaltation back to build up greater trust in themselves. And so, through their self-exaltation, they're exhibiting self-trust, self-absorption. As we mentioned, all eyes on them. They're kingdom builders, but they're not interested in building the kingdom of God. They're interested in building their own kingdoms where they are on the throne. But what they're building is something that will never last and never actually gives them any kind of shelter or any kind of refuge. It's like... uh, did you ever build uh, tent forts in your house? Evie and I just did this the other day. You build a, a tent fort, right? It, it's really neat. So you, you build a tent fort, and you, know, you have this shelter inside of it, and, and you, you feel like, this is it. This is my kingdom. I have this, this shelter. But then you decide, oh, I want to I go get something to eat. I, 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 let me go out and go over to the fridge and the house and get some food and bring it back. Oh, look at this food I got for myself. Oh, it's raining outside, but I'm actually under my tent shelter. But the reality is 
that tent shelter, that tent fort, is not a refuge or a shelter for anything. It's the house that's around it, right? That's the actual shelter. This is what it looks like for these scribes to be building up their own kingdoms that they think are actually their own doing when in fact the only thing that's sheltering them and keeping them from condemnation and judgment immediately is God himself who's interested in building his kingdom. And Jesus does make clear what awaits these scribes. They will receive the greater condemnation. This gets at the heart of Jesus' warning of why you should beware of the scribes. He says, don't follow them. Don't model your life after them. Because it's only going to lead to condemnation. And it's a greater condemnation, greater than what? Greater than, than the condemnation you should expect. Whatever condemnation looks like, theirs is a degree above that. Because they've been put in a position to shepherd God's people. And they are oppressing them. Don't follow them into that same condemnation. Don't model your life after them. Self-exaltation and trust in, and trust in self. This is the mark of an outsider. Instead of looking like them, those who would be in the kingdom of God should look more like the next case study. A poor widow. Look with me at part Three verses 41 through 44, the widow, insiders give up their lives. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So we're still in the temple in these inner courts. This is where the Jewish lay people, where men and women could still come. And in fact, there were offering boxes positioned at different places to give their offering to the temple. Now, when we picture an offering box here, we're not thinking of of like the little wooden box we have back there on, on the welcome table. This, this would have been something more like it, uh, a shofar-shaped metal receptacle, like a trumpet-shaped metal, metal receptacle that you threw your coins into. And so there's going to be a lot of racket, a lot of clanging, a lot of noise. There was no subtle giving here. People knew when you put in a lot. People also knew when you put in only a little. And in this scene, many rich people are giving much. So there's a lot of clanging, a lot of change and metal hitting metal and and noise. And in the swirl of all of this, the climactic moment is actually when a poor widow walks in. And she puts in two coins. Clang, clang. And our translation says they equal a penny uh, without getting into all the details of what exchange rates would be between 21st century U.S. currency and 1st century Palestinian currency. The, the, probably the best way to kind of gather this is just to, 
to think of what, uh, to consider what this word means that we translate two small copper coins. It means a small, thin thing. Or as one commentator translated, a tiny little thing. The, the point is that what the widow is giving is actually what amounts to the, the smallest currency that's in circulation at this time in Palestine, as commentators note. It, it was change enough to, to buy a meager meal. And by all accounts, anyone who witnessed it would have said the rich gave much and the widow gave little. But Jesus sees something else. So it's at this moment that he calls his disciples to himself, and Jesus asserts what what the main point of, of what he says here is this, verse 43. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. That's his main point. She has given more. But, as with much of Scripture, oftentimes oftentimes the reason that undergirds the main idea is actually where you will find gospel treasure. So what's the reason Jesus gives? Well, it's in verse 44. For they, the rich, all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So the idea here with abundance is that the rich, they have, they have met all their financial obligations, they've, they've bought all they need, they've paid all their bills, they've, they've spent money on themselves, and now they still have leftover, and out of that abundance that's left over to themselves, they're giving. While the woman, the widow, she gives all she had to live on. Essentially, Jesus is saying she is giving up her life in the giving of these coins. Now, I don't think that the primary lesson here is actually a giving lesson. That it, it could be a point, but I don't know. If, I don't think that's the primary point Mark is trying to make. And in fact, Mark could also be making another point. He intentionally ties this widow here in this scene to what he just said earlier about scribes devouring widows' houses. So this could very much be a commentary on the oppression that this widow is under from this man-made system that the scribes have co-opted in God's temple to make themselves rich, to take advantage of her faith, to lay a heavy burden on her. And so even... In fact, Jesus is going in the next chapter, we will see next week, talk about how God is going to undo this entire temple system, right? But even though that is a subtext and commentary, I don't think that's the main point either. Well, if those aren't the main point, what is, what's the main point? I think the main point that we should take away is that Jesus is exalting this woman because of her faith. It's just as Mark has been making clear throughout his entire gospel. This woman looks like someone who does not seek to hold on to her life here. She is not trusting in herself or trusting in her life. Rather, she is letting go and trusting God and holding on to God. 
She's losing her life in order to save it. And so when Jesus looks at this poor widow, he does not see merely a poor widow. Rather, he sees someone shining with a familiar image. He sees a reflection of himself. This widow gave all she had to live on. Jesus, the king of the kingdom of God, offered everything he had to live on, namely his life. He humbled himself to death, trusting that God would raise his perfect life. And now having been raised from the dead, he sits at God's right hand and waits for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus is living proof that humility before God and trust in him alone leads to everlasting life in the kingdom of God. And he extends the reward of his life to you and me if we will but humble ourselves and trust in him. So if the widow looks like Jesus here, think of how the scribes don't look like Jesus. Consider just one of their desires. They desire greetings in the marketplaces. They walk into the public sphere and expect their inferiors to come and greet them and build them up. Jesus, the Son of God, stepped into the public sphere, namely earth, humbled himself to put on flesh, walks in amongst humanity, the people he created, the people he owns, the people he has every right over, and he does not look for us to greet him. He comes to greet you and to give you his life. He does not sit in the highest seat when he sees you coming into the feast. He gets down and comes to you and says, come and sit with me. Jesus, the Son of God, humbled himself, trusting in God. And it is Jesus' humility and trust that proves to be the hope of your and my salvation. And so we, we must ask, if this humility and trust, does it mark my life? Do I look like my king? And so this leads to our gospel application. First, consider the pride, self-exaltation that comes from self-trust. We say, how do I identify this in my life? We are all human. It's going to be there, right? We're going to see it. Where do I see it popping up? Well, for one, we look at the scribes and see, what does it look like in them? This can be a positive self-exaltation or a negative self-exaltation, right? There, there, is, there is a flaunting of ourselves and exalting ourselves positively that says, look at me, all eyes on me, build up the trust I have in myself. If, if uh, the scribes had social media accounts, they'd be the ones building out their brand and trying to be influencers in the shallowest sense of the term, right? Every image would be of them self-exaltation, arrogant pride. But it could also manifest itself negatively, right? Self-exaltation doesn't have to look like trying to get man's approval. Self-exaltation can also be, I don't want man's approval. I don't give a rip what anybody else says. And so it fends off 
defensively any advance of love or intimacy that comes their way. We see the scribes do this as Jesus comes to them over and over. And what do they do? They defend. They stiff arm him. Stay away. So this self-exaltation can be positive or negative. Both of it reveals trust in self, and both will end up dominating and oppressing others. Because trust ultimately rests only in self. We see the scribes exhibit that. So how do we combat that pride and self-exaltation when we see it in our own lives, which we will, we look at humility and trust, is what we're trying to emulate. Do these marks mark my life as an insider of the kingdom? How do I lean into and grow in these characteristics? Well, two ways. The gospel itself and the means of grace that God gives us. First, we come to Jesus. The gospel itself, by design, necessitates humility and trust. We have to humble ourselves when we come to Christ. Because when we come to him seeking his forgiveness, it means that we're saying, I am prideful, I am arrogant, I self-exalt, I seek to dominate others, please forgive me. And then we have to trust in Christ and in God's love for us that when we come to him, he will not cast us out. There will not be condemnation but there will be welcome. If you have not humbled yourself, come to Jesus. Everything else is a non-starter. Everything else is just self-help. If we do not humbly come to Jesus, just as we heard read in, in James this morning, how do you submit yourself? How do you draw near to God? How do you Get clean hands and a pure heart through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that humility and in that trust, then God exalts us in Christ. Have to come to Christ. Requires humility and trust. And second, We must avail ourselves of the means of grace that God has given us. Well, what means? Well, there's there's a lot of means, but I'll just we'll just look at two. First, the local church. Life in the local church requires humility and trust. It requires and it fosters humility and trust. It cultivates it. The local church that God has sovereignly placed us together in, DGCC, is not an accident. God puts us in relationships with people, different backgrounds, different gifts, who will be able to see things in in my life that I cannot see, that I am blind to. And likewise, we'll be able to see things in other people's lives that they're blind to. We need one another. That is what covenant membership is is all about. We willingly open ourselves up to an invite and say, hey, please look into my life. Where do you see pride? Where do you see self-trust? And at the same token, we go humbly and lovingly and say, this is where I see pride. This is where I see self-trust. The local church, membership, commitment to it requires commitment to one another, 
and it requires and fosters humility and trust. Trust in each other, aimed at trust in God. Second, consider another means of grace, which is a tangible participation or outworking in this first means of the local church, the Lord's table. Now, we're not having it, celebrating the Lord's table today, but perhaps considering this reality might prompt us that way sometime. The Lord's table requires and fosters humility and trust. Just think of what happens when we come to the Lord's table. We, we, we come to the Lord's table saying these elements show the death of Jesus, that he died for my sin. This is humbling. When we look at the table, when we come to take the elements, we're saying, Christ died because of my sin. It's humbling. But we also say, his death is my life. The shedding of his blood is my forgiveness. So when I take tangibly this bread and and this cup, Jesus is here with us saying, welcome into my life. So it requires trust that there really is forgiveness in the death of Jesus on the cross. And we do it together. And so our eating and drinking testifies to the reality that our sinning, the reason we're coming to this table and the reason we come to Christ over and over, is oftentimes because we sin against one another. (laughs) And so our eating and drinking is is paired not only with us breathing out confession to God for our sins against him, but it's paired with our breathing out confession to one another where we've sinned against one another. That requires humility. But then it invites us also to celebrate no holds barred the absolute forgiveness in life we have in Jesus. This builds up our trust. The Lord's table is the antidote against pride and self-sufficiency and self-trust. There is no place for it there. The Lord's table requires and fosters humility and trust. So pride and self-trust are the marks of an outsider. Humility and trust in God are the marks of an insider. And God gives us the gospel of Jesus, the local church, and, and means of grace like his table that require and foster humility and trust. And in this environment, we should not be surprised when we see, we should not be discouraged when we see evidences of our flesh, pride, and self-trust coming to the surface. This environment is meant to draw that out. It's purpose to. We should grieve them, but then we should rejoice in the salvation that God gives us in his son. Jesus' humility and trust in God founded the kingdom of God. It's the mortar that binds you and I, living stones, to him, the cornerstone. And it's our humility and trust in God that will advance the kingdom of God in our hearts and on this earth. And it's our pride and our self-exaltation and our self-trust that will stifle the advance of the kingdom of God in our hearts and on this earth. In the kingdom of God, as proven by our king himself, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. By God's grace, you are called to be 
the latter. So let's be who God has called us to be, those marked with humility and trust. Would you pray with me?